electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, the consumer is evidently okay, but investors may want to hold their applause. A Ron DeSantis exclusive, the Florida governor renews his battle with Disney. He'll join us to explain why. Energy drain, AI, Bitcoin mining are booming, but is there enough power to support them? Got some numbers you're going to want to see. Another big insider stock sale, why a titan of private equity is now selling. And sink your teeth into this. Beyond Meat shares, scorching after hours, plus... A deal that sleeps with the fishes. Potential Paramount suitor, out. Is that a bad omen? Ahead of tomorrow's numbers, all that and more over the hour. So as always, belly up and buckle up, because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west, everybody. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan. All that and more coming up across the hour. But first up on Last Call, a surprising shift from Tim Cook. Reports say that Apple is pulling the plug on Project Titan. What is Project Titan? Well, that is Apple's decades-long, multi-billion dollar effort to build an Apple electric car. Apparently, the car is now dead. Instead, Apple reportedly shifting its brain power to building out more artificial intelligence. Apple has declined to comment on the report. Apple stock didn't move much on the news, but maybe nobody really cares about an Apple car. Who knows? But some of the other EV makers did close a little bit higher today on that report. Never to be outdone, Elon Musk bid, apparently, the project adieu on X, simply sharing an emoji of a salute, basically a a noble goodbye to Apple's EV dreams. Apple executives reportedly worried about the car project's path to profitability, Evidently, that is a very real concern. As you know, as we've talked about for like, I don't know, two years, many pure EV makers are burning cash. Last week, Rivian revealed it lost $43,000 per truck sold last quarter, which, by the way, is actually way less than it was losing. Ford's EV business lost nearly $5 billion last year. And GM, it does not expect to see profits from its EV segment for at least another year at best. So, Even if you don't care about cars, is this a good move for Apple? Is it good news for Tesla, Rivian, and others? With us tonight is Deepwater Asset Management Managing Partner Gene Munster and Gerber Kawasaki President and CEO Ross Gerber. Gene, you say you're surprised, but I wonder why. Whoever thought that an Apple car was a good idea in the first place? Well, I think Apple thought it was a good idea, and I think that they've got a history of redefining, reimagining product categories that were getting off the ground. And so the amount that they're investing, by my measure, was about a billion dollars per year, uh, most of that coming over the past three or four years. And Tim Cook said famously in 2017 that autonomous vehicles are the mother of all AI projects. And so if you uh, listened and watched what they're doing, they were they wanted to do this. This was a goal and of course, they've uh, now shifted direction. So that's what surprised me. I had put the odds at this 
at 50-50 that this would come out, 50% chance. I'm famously wrong for predicting Apple television that got killed in 2017. And that 2017 episode reminded me because Apple is working on something doesn't mean that it will see the light of day. And now we add the Apple car to that category. You're too hard on yourself. Apple TV does exist, not the physical TV, but of course the box. So we'll give you a pass on that one, Gene. Ross, is this, I mean, listen, uh, Apple could have probably owned Tesla five to 10 years ago. Maybe they still could take a pass at it. Who knows? What's your take? Well, I was with Gene with the Apple TV, and you know, I still can't believe they didn't release the TV. But I knew they were never going to do a car. You know, being an early Tesla investor and knowing their mode and knowing where they were at, and I had done many interviews back as far as 2015, um, talking about Apple taking a stake in Tesla. And when Tesla was in trouble in 2018 and needed money, supposedly there was a conversation between the two that Tim doesn't remember, but that. Lack of memory probably cost him hundreds of billions of dollars for Apple's shareholders if he would have taken a stake in Tesla at the time. And just the same, we see a similar opportunity for Apple if they want to be in this business by taking a stake in Rivian. But they don't want to be in this business, and they've made a clear commitment to Vision Pro. And moving this team over to AI is the smartest thing they can do. So this is a good move for Apple. Do you think, and I'll go back to you, Ross, we're going to just have a little fun. It's Tuesday, worst night of the week. Let's have some fun. Any chance... Apple at 2.8 trillion in market cap could try to buy Tesla at 700 billion in market cap, or is that completely insane? Well, not with this FTC. I mean, this FTC won't even let two bad grocery stores merge, let alone fair something as dominant as that. So, you know, we got to wait till something changes there. But, but in theory, I think the bigger issue is that Tim Cook and Elon Musk are like oil and water, and they would never work together ever. Okay, literally ever. So it would have to be one or the other in charge and the other not being involved if that was ever going to happen. Well, we know the federal government loves Elon Musk. So you never know, Ross. Maybe they could just take, take a pass. <laughs> Please. You know, it's too, it's too Elon's going to do. The show just Elon's started. It's too early for the sarcasm. It's Tuesday. G- it's yeah, Tuesday. exactly. G- Gene Munster. Um, yeah, Apple, cars are hard. I mean, phones... The thing with your eyeballs that they're doing now, okay, those are hard. Cars are a different animal. If you're an Apple shareholder, many of our viewers and listeners are, should they be happy about this news? I think they should be disappointed. And part of it is that Apple's a tech company, and tech companies, by definition, need to grow. And that's the $400 billion question that they have. That's their revenue this year. And to grow a top line, they haven't grown their top line for the last six quarters. And to grow the business, you got to get into some big markets. Vision Pro has some potential, but that was the kind of the shiny opportunity related to the car. This could, if they get 10% of the automotive market, that would grow their top line by 60%. We can set aside the earnings question, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I understand that most investors thought that this was a low probability, and that is reflected in how the stock traded today. But ultimately, I'm disappointed. I, I, I think Apple could have done something really uh, special when it comes okay. to automotive. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt, Gene, but to the point I just made with Ross, the question, rather, maybe there's a chance, so you're saying there's a chance, that Apple is abandoning its own effort because maybe it does want to take a pass. Maybe not at Tesla, which is massive, but maybe at a Rivian. Maybe at a Lucid, right? Yeah. Instead of build, just buy. I think that makes sense. I think the Rivian piece is 
that lines up. I think by my last check, it's what, $10, $12 billion market cap and uh, definitely more doable. And I think it does uh, line up. Apple uh, could do this. And I think that that would uh, get them into that bigger market. So I, I again, I've, you know, I'm disappointed that this this turn in events. And so I don't want to be predicting that they're going to ultimately do do something like this. But I do think Apple needs to break into some new market. And uh, I mean, dare I say the television, it still surprises me that they they didn't do it. I, I don't want to go back to that conversation, but <laughs> they need to do something uh, big and potentially Rivian would be just the answer to that. Could be. And that, that would, by the way, probably make a lot of Rivian shareholders very happy. Not, we're just wildly speculating, but that's what makes it fun. And uh, you guys always make it fun. Ross, appreciate it. Gene, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. Take care. All right. So let's take a look at what happened to your macro markets money today. The Dow down a touch. The S&P and the Nasdaq up a touch, basically getting back most of what they lost yesterday. All the major averages rising. But by the way, small caps were actually the better performers today. All right. We are just getting going on this Tuesday. And up next is the long, epically awaited broadening out for the market finally here or is it just going to be Groundhog Day for the Magnificent Seven once again? Plus, a wide-ranging, exclusive interview with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis firing a bit of a new shot in his battle with Disney. We'll talk to him about that, the housing market, inflation, insurance, and more, all coming up. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. And first up today, Starbucks and the Starbucks Workers United Union agreeing to restart bargaining talks. They're working on resolving litigation on both sides. Right now, only about 4% of Starbucks stores are unionized. Starbucks will also grant a wage increase to those unionized workers. That pay bump was previously instituted in 2022 for non-union workers. Shares slightly in the green. Next up, Beyond Meat, those shares sizzling after hours. On their results, companies seeing resilient demand for its meat products in key markets outside the United States. It also says planning steep cost cuts this year. Keep in mind, Beyond Meat stock down still nearly 90% from its peak. It is one of the most shorted Stocks, the market, so no doubt a lot of that is what we would call in the business ye olde short covering. Finally, dating app Bumble also posting results after the bell today, but here's the big headline. Bumble saying it's going to lay off about 37% of its workforce. 37, not 3.7, 37% of its workforce, all part of a restructuring plan. That amounts to about 350 employees are going to lose their jobs. Shares falling after hours. The company said the layoffs will help it align with, quote, future strategic priorities. Bumble is also forecasting weak first quarter revenue. Um, maybe nobody's dating online anymore. All right, in the meantime, several other stocks hitting new all-time highs today. And they are not the Magnificent Seven. These are some of the more consumer-focused companies out there. AutoZone, 
TJ Maxx, American Express, Progressive Insurance, Ulta, and Raw Stores, all at record highs. Also a big day for big box stocks. Home Depot, Lowe's, trading at levels not seen in two years. What do all these names have in common? Well, clearly, they're all companies that sell stuff to you, the American consumer. So is this maybe another sign that the death of the American consumer is, as they say, greatly exaggerated? Let's talk about it with DCLA managing partner and fund manager Surat Seti, also a CNBC contributor and part-time star of the Halftime Report. Surat, it's good to have you back on Last Call. Are you surprised by the resilience in some of these consumer names? Uh, not really, Brian. If you look at kind of where we have employment, we're still sitting at a very strong uh, employment history. We haven't seen that flow through. Wages have been going up. That's something the Fed is very concerned about. The consumers feeling like they have money in their wallet. And, and we've also talked about what happened during COVID and after COVID. And, you know, consumers are spending money on, on not just goods, but also services. And you look at stocks like American Express. And, you know, one of the things they always say is, our consumers are now spending more money because they want to travel, they want to go to hotels. And you're seeing that, you know, at Lowe's where um, consumers are still, still spending money, not as much as they did two years ago, but there's still so much spending money on their homes because they're not really moving anywhere given where rates are. Yeah. And does it show you, and I know we've got a lot of, you know, argument about who's to blame for inflation, even though it's coming down. Some people are saying it's corporate greed. Others say it's just a residual of all the money, whatever, whatever the argument is. Does this show you, Surat, that these companies do have pricing power? I, I think the brands have pricing power, and we've seen that through COVID, and we're seeing that right now, too. So companies that can price, whether it's the Pepsis and the Cokes of the world, uh, Constellation Brands and beer, and then you look at other areas like the Amexes of the world, yes, you can price. And as long as the consumer feels they're getting price to value, that's where we're going with this. And I think companies that understand that are producing strong earnings in cash flow. And Brian, we're coming back to kind of rationalization for cash flow as well. It used to be just grow, grow, grow. And the reason you're seeing these cuts now is because during COVID, people hired way more than they needed because everything was, you know, we're going we're gonna, to uh, price you according to how okay. much you can grow sales. Well, we're going to price you how much you can grow earnings. Now. Any specific names that you could uh, maybe drop for our audience here, Sarat? So, you know, let, let's pick in, in Staples, you got companies like Lamb Wesson, you know, they make the French fries that people buy at the grocery stores at McDonald's. They've got pricing power. The stock is really cheap. We like that one. Uh, let's go to uh, basic materials commodities. Look at Freeport McNamara that has copper. Uh, we haven't built a copper mine in 10 years and, and they're going to have pricing power there as well. So, you know, two companies right there that I think you, you want to own. Uh, because mm-hmm. they've got secular growth. They are more diversified as part of your portfolio than kind of other companies that are just the max seven. We want to electrify the world, but we don't want to allow new copper mines to make the wire. Methinks that is pricing power. Lamb Wesson, love it. The French fry reference. Surat Seti, always love having you on Last Call, Surat. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Great to All be right. with you. Be well. All right, on deck, a Last Call exclusive with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's got Disney back in his sights and says... He's going to save Florida taxpayers a lot of money. We'll tell you how next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. The Disney Wars are heating up. Billionaire investor Nelson Peltz, who is known for aggressively taking stock in companies and then calling for major changes, is ramping up efforts to shake up Disney. He wants two seats on the board. Peltz and former Disney exec Jay Rasulo say the company has lost its direction. Rasulo spoke exclusively to CNBC earlier today. The problems that we see at Disney, you know, have a very obvious root cause. And that cause is poor oversight by a complacent board. This company has invested $200 billion, more than their market cap, over the last five years. And by every conceivable financial measure, the company is down. I don't know how a board can allow that to happen. Now, Peltz and Rusulo not the only ones taking on Disney. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis speaking out one year after the state took over Walt Disney's special governing district, previously known as Reedy Creek. Now, the governor spoke recently, about five days ago, at Disney World, and today reiterated the takeover was part of Disney's special tax treatment and is now going to save Floridians money, as much as $18 million in both property taxes and things like procurement costs. All this, as the state and Disney are still embroiled in a lawsuit over who should really control that special Disney district. Let's talk more about all of this and more with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Governor DeSantis, thank you for joining us on CBC again, sir. Good evening. Yeah, good evening. Listen, you spoke at Disney World, which I found surprising. You were talking about the success of this program. I'm, like, I'm thinking, how did they let you in, by the way? Um, is that why continue this fight with Disney? By all accounts, you basically won. What are you getting by going forward and continuing to push? Well, I don't think we're actually fighting. I think what I did was highlight, and today's actually the one-year anniversary of me signing the bill to impose this state oversight board, control board, over this district and effectively displace Disney, who, and this is unique because you cover all these different major corporations. There's not a single corporation in this country other than Disney that actually controlled its own local government with extraordinary powers, and they wielded that. There's been an audit done that's shown a lot of the cronyism that happened, but we were basically pointing out there were a lot of people that were saying, oh, people in Central Florida are going to pay higher taxes. The sky's going to fall, all this stuff. Those people were wrong. Now, obviously, there were folks that had a political agenda that just wanted to, to hit me. I get that. But there was so much misinformation. And so what has happened is you have saved money. You now have an open procurement process. So these businesses, local businesses in Central Florida, they can compete. Before, if they weren't on the Disney-approved list, they couldn't compete for business in this district, the, the lawsuit that they had filed against us, where a lot of the commentators were saying it was somehow a slam dunk against Florida, which was not consistent with the understanding of proper understanding of the law. Again, I think that was more politically motivated. That lawsuit has been dismissed by a federal district judge. Now, we'll see what happens, yeah. but nothing's going to I, there, there's not going to be a federal court that is going to overrule a legislature. The Florida legislature passed legislation to reform this district. They have every right to do that under our state constitution or pretty much 
any state legislature yeah. would be able to do that in their states. And plus, th this has worked out well for taxpayers. We've exposed a lot of cronyism. And I think it's been a, been a success story. I don't view it as a fight at this point because I think they've lost um, on the, the underlying claims. And, uh, and we're going to move forward. But, you know, Florida's doing very well uh, economically. We've got a lot going on in that region and other regions of the state. So we're proud of that. It's a bit of a wonky story. And so I want to clarify for the audience that's not been fit. Maybe they don't live in Florida. They don't know what's going on. Um, this is this special tax district, and they've got the people that run it. And you took it over, you, and you changed the name. And to your point, Governor, you've done this first audit in a year, and you found all these things that were going on. So is this more about that organization that used to be called Reedy Creek and less about Disney is because I would see maybe you and Disney could come together on this and say we all we both would benefit and including the taxpayers if this local sort of quasi political organization just operated in the most transparent way possible. Well, the problem was, so this was a district created in 1967, Reedy Creek, to entice Disney to build the original Magic Kingdom. Uh, but part of the deal and, and was Disney worked, was going to build the theme. It worked. Well, yeah, it, it worked for the park. But what the other part of that deal was that Disney was going to build a residential community. So what would have ended up happening is that would have been the voters who would have elected people to serve in this in this district, which there are districts that are created in Florida and other states. That's not unusual in of itself. What was unusual about this situation is Disney never built the, the community. So what you ended up having was the corporation solely controlled all the the uh, the operations of this local government. They had powers that no local government, to my knowledge, has ever had in Florida. For example, they had extraterritorial eminent domain powers. So they could seize your property outside the district boundaries uh, if it was in Disney's interest. And there was a whole host of other things. So the way it evolved was basically one corporation running their entire local government. And what would happen is they would effectively be able to decide whether how to levy taxes on a lot of the tenant businesses. Because, you know, if mm -hmm. you've been down there, there's all kind of hotels and other things that operate within that district. So they would tax those people and they would use that to basically fund Disney's improvements. Now, with the state board that's in place, they actually reduce the tax rate on all those tenant businesses and save them a lot of money. So it's just the fact that cronyism does not work. A lot yeah. of the things the audit uncovered, honestly, is not unique to Disney. It's human nature. Yeah, if people give out tickets where you're or whatever, right? Like that, that's... Well, there was a lot of back and forth. There was procurement problems. There was uh, problems with how uh, Disney was not participating with the overall metro area, with, with, uh, with the infrastructure and everything like that. So there's a whole host of things. But basically, if you have no check and balance and you're just running a government in the best interest of your company, of course you're going to yeah. run in these problems. That would have happened if it was any other company. But the reality is, is where we are now is an example of a positive government reform. It was misrepresented last year um, in a lot of the media. And so we're able to say, hey, here's what's happened. Uh, aren't we better off now as a result? And, and full transparency, right? Because I, the media deserves some criticism once in a while, Governor. Even I would admit that sitting here. Our, our parent company, NBC Universal, has got a gigantic theme park right near Disney. So I would like to get you on the record right now speaking out to America. You want Disney to succeed, do you not? This is, is, is this not anti-Disney? In fact, um, you remember during COVID, 
in California, Disneyland was closed for like over a year. In Florida, we got not only Disney, but Universal and SeaWorld. We got them open very quickly. In fact, Universal was open within weeks of their decision to close. And I didn't close them. They decided to do that. So we want all of these to do. So I saved jobs uh, in the Magic Kingdom and the other parks by the thousands by taking that action. And in fact, when I ran for re-election, a lot of people were trying to say, oh, you have a skirmish with Disney, you're gonna suffer. Uh, the county where most of the Disney employees yeah. live, Osceola County, is a historically Democrat county. We, we won that county. I was the first Republican in a long time. So people remember that. We are saying, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your network, you know, you do have the Epic Universe opening uh, for Universal. That's going to be a huge project. Uh, we're looking forward. I, I went to the announcement back in 2019. Uh, COVID, I know, uh, stopped a little bit of it, but that's going to make a big, big difference. And so we're proud of all these parks. It's good, good engine for growth. Now, our state is a lot more than theme parks now, and we have people going all over. We're proud of that as well. Uh, but I want to see um, yeah. all these people be able to succeed. But you got to succeed by playing by the same rules as everybody else. Why should Disney be exempt from laws, which they were under the previous regime, while Universal and SeaWorld have to follow laws? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I want to move on to a different topic. One that is, you know, I hear when I go to Florida, or we said that you were coming on the show, everybody pings me about inflation, particularly home insurance, Governor. They say, listen, okay, Florida, it's growing, but inflation, in some cases, housing is outpacing the rest of the country. And you got to admit that housing insurance is a disaster in some ways. The cost, if you can get it, what are you doing to combat this, this epic homeowner insurance inflation if people can get the policy in the first place? There has to be something that can be done, no? But we have done things. So first, uh, we're a state that faces a lot of perils. Uh, it's just the reality that we deal with. And we've had three major hurricanes uh, from 2017 to the present, including most recent Hurricane Ian, in 2022. Second, there's a general inflation that is impacting this. It's much more uh, expensive to do a roof today than it was four or five years ago. That's just the reality. Now, one of the dysfunctional things that had plagued Florida's insurance market is we represented about 8% of overall claims nationwide and yet accounted for 75% of all litigation costs. So we did a major reform about a, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, to, to change that and get us more aligned with the rest of the country. What has happened since then, and this is within the last six or seven months, uh, we now have seven new companies that have entered Florida's market. They've injected uh, or will inject about $1.25 billion in new capital. They have taken out hundreds of thousands of policies from this citizen's property insurance, which was created uh, decades ago. It is not solvent, and we can't have millions of people on that because if a storm hits, it's going to cause problems for the state. So they're taking out those policies. The interesting thing is about 30 percent of those policies from citizens, the, these new private insurers will actually be able to offer lower rates uh, to those people. No one thought that was possible. So I think because we've reformed uh, those underlying dynamics, I think it's more attractive today to offer policies than it was over the last 20 years. Uh, but, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. I think you're going to see more and more so, people uh, dedicate capital here. But ultimately, 
the way you deal is have more companies offer policies. If you're in a situation that you have one option, yeah. well, you have no protection against premium increases. And so we're really inviting a lot of companies. I think we've made the market much more sound. And I'd also say this, we're going to enact again. We've done it over the last, uh, the last 18 months. We have a program called My Safe Florida Home. Floridians can get grants to match uh, improvements to their home to harden it. Those that have done it, 70% have either had a, a stabilization in rates or decline in rates. So I think we're going to do hundreds of millions of dollars in this upcoming budget, which is going to be done within the next two weeks. That's something, it's not for wealthy people, it's for, for middle class and below, uh, but that has been something that's yeah. been effective. So the My Safe Florida Home, I think, has been a good, good endeavor. Well, if you don't have home insurance, you don't have a housing market, and people that need to take out mortgages are going to get crushed. So I would imagine this is something you'd want to fix because that would entice more people to move. No one's going to move to the state if they can't buy a house or maybe they're forced to rent. On a very quick other issue, we talk about immigration a lot from an economic perspective. Governor, you know this. We are CNBC, so we come at it from more the economic side. New York City, the mayor, not my opinion, the mayor is warned about massive cuts in services. Chicago, nearly a disaster there. Denver, warning as well. They simply cannot afford the migrant influx. What's interesting is, is that I do not hear a lot about economic woes from Florida, but I would imagine you are a massive destination for migrants. What is the economic story of the border crisis in Florida? Well, it's interesting. I was the first governor to send people to Texas back in 2021 to help at the border. And what they were telling us, these, the Florida State Troopers and National Guard people, was that a, a significant percentage of these uh, illegal aliens wanted to come to Florida, 30, 40 percent of the encounters. And I was like, well, that's not going to work for us. And so we've since enacted policies uh, where we have stronger penalties against people that are smuggling into Florida. And then we have E-Verify. So we have a legal workforce. So you can't just come across the border illegally and work in Florida because we have a system in place uh, that is guaranteeing a legal workforce. Incidentally, that's another situation where um, a lot of folks in the chattering class were saying that that was somehow going to be bad uh, for Florida. It's turned out it's been, been good for Florida. You also have the other issue. There was a report, I think it was on one of your rival networks, but there's, a, there's like these theft rings with Ill illegal immigrants, and they steal in New York. And bring it and to you. try to come to Florida to spend the money. But they don't steal in Florida. And the question is, is why? And they're like, because if you steal in Florida, you go to jail. And we're serious about the rule of law down here, not just with illegal immigration, but writ large. In fact, we're going to be doing some stuff to toughen up penalties for retail theft. Because if you look at like the San Francisco and L.A., when, when shoplifting is legalized by these rogue prosecutors, and it's much more than just the bottom line of those companies. It really causes the social fabric to collapse. So we're kind of the anti-California, anti-New yeah. York when it comes uh, to being tough on crime. Governor Ron DeSantis, I could go another 20 minutes like we did in August when it was 178 degrees in Tallahassee. But we've run out of time this time. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. You're really... always welcome down here. Let us know. Yeah. Thank you very much, Governor. Well, we'll do it in the winter when it's a little more mild. Governor, thank you. Do appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. All right. By the Thanks way, so speaking much. of that lawsuit that was dismissed, Florida against Disney, of course, we're, we reached out to Disney and its lawsuit against the governor. They did respond. They told us in a statement, quote, if left unchallenged, this would set a dangerous precedent and give license to states to weaponize their official powers to punish the expression of political viewpoints they disagree with. We are determined to press forward with our case. In other words, Disney, they're not letting this go. All right. Straight ahead. The shocking reality behind the boom of A.I., Bitcoin mining and, oh yeah, electricity. Plus, one of the titans of private equity, 
doing something he has never, ever done before. We start this segment with a riddle. What do AI and crypto have in common? The answer, they're not just two of the biggest investment themes of the past five years. They are both massive energy consumers. Bitcoin mining, now about 2% of all American electricity demand last year. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it's about 6 million homes worth of electricity from Bitcoin mining. And now here comes AI. AI and other machine learning just eat energy. McKenzie expects energy demand to boom, and some are warning of coming energy possible shortages, brownouts, blackouts, etc. So the question is, where do we get all this new power from to power the future? Well, renewables are being built out, but even Google's data centers only run on carbon-free energy about 65% of the time, according to Bloomberg. So let's talk about it with Andres Gluski. He is the president and CEO of AES Corporation. They are the number one renewable energy provider to major global corporations. Uh, Andres, really, really important interview. I know you had earnings today, but I want to focus more on this. Where is this power coming from? Because if we don't have it, other countries may. Well, that, that's a great question. So what we're seeing is an incredible demand for renewables over the next decade, at least. So to power the AI revolution, that's going to require data centers. And data centers are going to require zero carbon energy. And most of these companies are requiring additionality, which means you have to build new renewables to, to meet that need. So what we really have is a situation where there's tremendous demand that's going to need to be faced. And I also would say that we're not going to meet that incredible demand by just doing more of the same. We're going to need innovative solutions to get around bottlenecks, for example, be it in transmission or, or bottlenecks about supply. So that's really where uh, AES has been focused, is sort of overcoming the bottlenecks to accelerate that energy future. Yeah. And, and talk to us also, it's not just about building the thing, building the windmill, building the solar, building the nuclear. I, I hope you can still do that. But it's also getting the wires to it, the power lines to it. Although, yes. Andres, are these data centers going to become effectively self-sustaining their own little cities and just keep their own power for themselves? I don't think they're going to become their sort of own little cities, at least for the uh, next decade or so. I mean, in some future date, depending on the advanced technology, possibly. Uh, because, you know, it takes a, a certain amount of space to provide those renewables. Now, as you mentioned, you know, it's how to get that energy across the wires to where it's needed. So, for example, I think we're doing two very interesting things at um, AES. One is to realize that electricity is, is a strange industry because you don't have any buffer. You have to produce all the electricity you need for a given instant, pretty much. I mean, there's energy storage, but it's still relatively small. But if you think about the grid, it's built for the peak demand. And that peak demand could be one hour a day. It could be eight hours. It could be 12 hours. So basically, you have mm -hmm. a lot of wires sitting subutilized. So one of the things that uh, AES has done, one of our subsidiaries, Fluence, has done is, for example, use energy storage to be able to transmit electricity on the off hours, sort of the Airbnb of transmission. So they have a billion-dollar project in Germany, which stores the, uh, the wind power from the North Sea on land, transmits it over existing power lines, when they're not being fully utilized, stores it up at the other end and then gives it to the big industrial customers in Bavaria. 
Now that saves you billions and decades in time. So I think that's the sort of innovative thing that we have to do is how do we make better use of existing infrastructure? The second is we have the biggest, what's called dynamic line rating project in the US. What is dynamic line rating? I was just gonna ask that. What is dynamic line rating? I don't know. <laughs> and I cover energy for a living. Well, dynamic line rating is basically your transmission lines are rated for the worst possible conditions. So fortunately, most of the time is not the worst possible conditions, you know, minus 30 degrees, snowing, et cetera. So what we have mm -hmm. done, and this is a 400 hour uh, megawatt uh, energy storage project in Indianapolis, is you put sensors on the wires. So with software, you determine what's the maximum, you know, with a margin, energy that you can transmit uh -huh. given today's temperatures, given today's humidity. So that allows you in some situations to transmit yeah. twice as much energy as you would if you just did a flat rating. I, so I love Andres, we, so we, we unfortunately we have to go. But what here's what I love about this is that human beings, your team, really smart women and men are coming up with solutions that we need so that America can lead in AI and Bitcoin and everything else. Because like I said, if we don't, somebody else will. I'd love to get you back on soon, Andres, to talk about nuclear and where that's going. But I've been nuked. The segment's been nuked when the music is cued. <laughs> Andres, thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. All right, take care. All right, coming up, small cap stocks. Are they finally here? I mean, really, we mean it finally. We mean it this time. Gina Sanchez up next with that. At the end of last year or early this year, I made several big predictions for the year. They're all made for fun. But one of them was that small caps are going to beat the S&P 500. But two months into the year, like my hairline, the prediction is not going well. The S&P 500, don't laugh, Gina. The S&P 500 has outperformed the Russell 2000, okay? But it's early and the tides may be turning. Small caps posted big gains today. In fact, the Russell 2000 is riding its first four-day win streak in two months. So could small caps be the next big thing? Let's talk about it with Chantico Global CEO Gina Sanchez, usually in like L.A. or London, but you're now in suburban New Jersey. So welcome, Gina. Thank you. Um, you, could, you could dunk on me. It's two months in. The predictions stink so far. I can't get them all right. What do you think? Well, so it's interesting because you see predictions for growth for this year are, are being brought up, predictions for growth for next year are being brought down. But on average, no one's expecting a recession, and I think that's going to play to small caps. That's good for small caps. They They're are domestic so, companies. They, they are so cheap, and not just cheap relative to large caps. They're cheap relative to themselves. So here's the fly in the ointment. I, I, I know that feeling. I'm cheap. I'm cheap. <laughs> I feel cheap relative to myself. Exactly. Exactly, Brian. But, you know, I'll tell you what, you're a good value. And that is what small caps are. They're a good value. And, and if you look at their historical, they're actually much more attractive than large caps are. And the other thing about this is this rally, it's not a junk rally. It isn't the most volatile names, the riskiest names, mm -hmm. the names with the worst. In fact, if you look at how this rally's worked out, it's actually the names that have the best EPS, the names that have lower volatility. That's what's being favored. Um, in this rally. Well, I would, here's what, I don't know if we can do it on short notice. And guys, I'm sorry, I should have thought of this earlier. Um, I wonder if my prediction is right this year if you took out the top, the, the MAG 7 from the, if you did the S&P 500 equal weight, I wonder if that 
And I'm just kind of wondering aloud, hopefully somebody could fire up a quick graphic and we could see um, <laughs> if that is underperforming small caps, because it just feels like the NVIDIAs of the world are just taking over everything. That's they it. are. And there's definitely a big element of AI hype fueling this latest rally in the S&P 500. Now, here's the challenge for small caps is that the S&P 500 and what fueled that AI rally was actually great earnings. NVIDIA came out and just absolutely refueled yeah, everything. Huge numbers. Right. And if you look across the S&P 500, earnings are actually picking back up. So you're starting to see upticks in earnings. We've already had our big trough two quarters ago. S&P 600, it's happening right now. They're yeah. in their worst quarter But I guess here's my, here's, my, here's my point, okay? And, and you, go, you, you live in L.A. full-time, and there's all these, you know, you think about these companies that started in L.A., right? Believe it or not, they did, and they got big. And I'm not dunking on NVIDIA. I'm not dunking on Starbucks. I'm not dunking on Dunkin'. But I want to find the, see what I did there? I want to I find the next Starbucks. I want to find the next NVIDIA. I want to find the next what, McDonald's. They're in the small caps now. They are. And Nobody starts big. Absolutely. Although if you look at the small cap makeup, for whales, <laughs> they just they're big all their they're lives. They're born big. That's yeah. It. But but if you look at small cap, right, you look at the largest sector of small cap. Do you know what that is? Industrials. OK. Right? And so that's not exactly, you know, the the, the stuff of growth. Look at my chart. They brought, look at my, the best team in the business. They somebody they hand drew so that good. in the back. Oh, look, at, I'm still wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to warn you that you might be, but <laughs> I didn't off by one percent. It's not even March yet. <laughs> but here's the other thing, right? If you go down financials, there's also consumer discretionary. The one thing that's still going mm -hmm. is wage growth right now, and that wage growth is being shared across high tech and high skill and low skill workers. And yep. so that wage growth is still at, oh, above five percent. Consumer discretionary, which is good small cap stuff. Yep. That's a big component of it. So there are parts of small cap that should do well. But right now they are in their trough of earnings and they're just going to have to start to dig their way out over the next two quarters. Small but mighty, much like somebody I know. Thank Gina you. Sanchez, thank you. Love, love, love having you come in the studio. And we'll see you in L.A. in a couple months, all right? I can't wait. All right. I know you can, Gina. Thank you. All right, coming up. The offer is this. Nada. Paramount losing a potential suitor. So what's next? Alex Sherman up with that. According to Just Capital, only 11% of Russell 1000 companies disclose 2024 race and ethnicity diversity targets for their management teams. But that's up 9% compared to 2023. Celebrating Black Heritage, I'm Sharon Epperson. All right, welcome back. Maybe some bad news for Paramount Global and its investors on the eve of its fourth quarter results. According to People Familiar, it's always People Familiar, Warner Brothers Discovery has halted merger talks with the media company. So what's this say, if anything, about the future of Paramount, including what may be coming tomorrow? For more, we're joined by CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman. Uh, Warner Brothers seen as Paramount's maybe best, not last, but best hope. Why'd the dream die? Yeah, it's funny, Brian, because perhaps bad news for Paramount Global shareholders, perhaps good news for Warner Brothers Discovery shareholders. Uh, the stock actually popped several percent on the news because if you look back at these big media mergers, I mean, you can think about CBS Viacom or Fox Disney or uh, Scripps Discovery before Warner Media Discovery came together, AT&T Time Warner. They've all led to many billions of dollars in, in, of, of lost value. None of those transactions have worked out well. 
for shareholders. Yeah. So now you look at these two companies, Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount Global, both struggling. I mean, Warner Brothers Discovery is at an all-time low. Paramount Global near a 52-week low. Uh, the idea, I think, of putting these two companies together was not a hit. One, one kind of a one plus one equals one and a half type thing. What, what's R- what's wrong? Why, like why do people? Negative. Why do investors dislike Paramount? Paramount's got CBS, CBS Sports. It's got good, some of their movies have done Top Gun, Maverick. They've they've there seem to be a lot of really high quality assets here. So look, Skydance Media remains interested in Paramount Global, which has a special committee out there and is fielding different offers. And why are they interested? Well, because Paramount Pictures is a great asset. The problem is that. There's a declining linear business that's heavily dedicated toward declining linear advertising, and we're sure to hear about that tomorrow when Paramount Global reports earnings. This has been down like 10% plus now in, in recent quarters across the media industry, not just Paramount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but Paramount is particularly uh, uh, heavy yeah. with the advertising. And Skydance, so run by David Ellison, super smart, good friends with Tom Cruise. You never know what could happen. Alex Sherman, look forward to those numbers tomorrow. Alex, really do appreciate that. Folks, always appreciate you listening or watching or watching the podcast or whatever it is. And I'm done with time and I'm going to see you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.